Happy Hanukkah! This year, Judaism Unbound is partnering with our friends, the Torah Studio, in an initiative called Apocryphist, Hanukkah Unbound and Uncanonized. We believe that Hanukkah can be a time of year where we connect to many books that were not officially included in the Hebrew Bible, but which nonetheless can be meaningful for Jewish individuals, communities, and the world. Through four bonus episodes, we will be exploring some of these books in detail and asking big questions about what canon even means. Liana Wertman, founder of the Torah Studio, which is an accessible and inclusive learning space that encourages people to take ownership of our traditional Jewish texts and to pass partner with us on live streaming events exploring books from Esther to Lamentations to Ecclesiastes to Ruth, joins us for all four of these bonus conversations. Learn more and sign up for our Apocryphist email list, which will be sent out throughout Hanukkah, by visiting judaismunbound.com apocrypha. That's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound. Esther's Editions, Esther's Editions. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lex Rofberg. And I'm Liana Wertman. And we're back for our second episode of our second Apocryphist. This is a day of twos. And today we are talking about the second version, or the second take on a very familiar story, actually. This is not an example of a story that's like, oh, you never heard about this one, and now we're going to tell you about it, and it should be part of our Jewish tradition. That's coming up next time. But for now, this is a book that you actually may already know lots about, and we're just telling you that there's more to it than you realized, and that some sections of it, some serious sections of it, may not have been part of the story that you received. You may have been deprived some really interesting text. Some might frame it not as depriving, but of just, you know, creative license to to use some parts and not others. But what book am I talking about, Liana? All the listeners know already because they literally clicked the episode that has the title, but I'm pretending there's suspense here. What book am I talking about? We're talking about the book of Esther, the story of Purim, the story of Esther and Mordechai saving the Jews who live in Shushan. This story is classic for those that might not recognize it or might not remember it off the top of their heads. It's the story of two Jewish people living in exile in the city called Shushan. Esther, this young Jewish woman, ends up while hiding her Judaism, married to the king of Shushan. And at the same time, the king's main advisor, Haman, boo, maybe we can insert some sort of booing, like groggers, boo. boo. Everybody, we're pausing. Give your boo. Okay, we're back. So Haman ends up very mad at Esther's uncle Mordechai for not respecting him the way that he feels he deserved to be respected and blames the entire Jewish community for it, eventually causing them to be put onto a list to be destroyed on a particular day in about a year. And so this tells the story of the bravery and the way that Mordechai and Esther had to put themselves into dangerous positions and situations. And when it went to Greece, when we were expanding and moving around, they wrote this book out in Greek and thought that there was something missing. And so they added in, in particularly these Greek translations, these extra sections, not just at the beginning and the end, but throughout the entire book. It's a completely different energy of a book while keeping the same story. When it came back to actually creating our canon, they looked at the original texts that did not include these editions, and they looked at the additional texts, and they decided to go with the original, which 
Lex and I think is weird that they went with the original mm-hmm. and we'll talk about why we that do. is. Because the pieces that got added are the pieces that we talk about being weird all the time. If you've ever heard a sermon or some sort of talk about the book of Esther, you've probably heard that the name of God and any reference to the divine is completely missing from the book. That's weird. Why would they not be praying to God, be saying that this is for God? They fast for three days and God's name isn't mentioned. And so these Greek additions put very solidly not only. God engaging with humans through prophecy and dreams that will predict the future, but also through the characters themselves having direct conversations with God as they tried to go through these difficult times. I'm with you. I'm confused why they chose not to use this expanded version. And just again, to really make this clear, the book of Esther that we read by certain definitions is only part of the whole thing. We could, it's, Every way of describing the book of Esther is sort of a choice that predisposes us towards one group of people's narrative and another. So if we call the one that most Jews use, that's Esther. And then the other things are window dressing on Esther, additions to Esther. Then we are presupposing that the Esther that was written in Hebrew, that is 10 chapters, that most of us probably heard as the Megillah, we are presupposing that that is true Esther, and other things calling themselves Esther are like guised as Esther, or they are superfluous or separate. The other way to talk about Esther is that there was an incomplete document that was 10 chapters long, and some people came into the picture who recognized some gaps, finished it, and created the document that we now have. This comes up, by the way, when we talk about like the New Testament or the Old Testament, like the Old Testament implies that there is a new one. And so Jews tend not to talk about the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament. We tend to talk about it as the whole thing. It's the Torah, it's the Tanakh, it's the Hebrew Bible. So all of these are very layered and complicated kinds of choices in just how we talk about it. But I am going to use the phrasing of like expanded Esther, which is true for either side of that equation. It's true that it started smaller and became bigger. That might be good. It might be bad. But I think things in the Hebrew alphabet and occasionally Aramaic, which is also written in Hebrew alphabet characters, those things seem to be granted a certain kind of status by rabbis. And things in Greek, they have not centered. I think they could have gone the other way. I think theologically, you're right. Like Theologically, it's like remarkable and interesting, remarkable in the sense of needs to be remarked upon that there's no God here. So that problem that rabbis talk about now in their sermons, it's not like we discovered that now, or even that traditional rabbinic commentators discovered that. Like that, even some Greek Jews a couple thousand years ago thought was an issue, and they just chose to rewrite the story. And that, I think, is very cool. I think there's also a lot of space to acknowledge that there are original texts and there are important additions that were made that tell us a lot about the people who wanted to add to them. And that's not to say that those texts couldn't have become canon, but as a student of history, you know, when you look at primary texts, we want to notice the changes over time. And I think that there is something worthwhile about acknowledging that the smaller, shorter, and more vague text is older. 
And it's just as interesting then that Jews felt that they had the ability and capacity to own the text enough to expand it. And there also, it allows us to think about why would someone in Greece, why would a Jew who's living outside of the land of Israel during a time where there was an opportunity to live there be adding these in? What did it tell to the Greek community, to the Jewish Greeks, that there was this deep relationship with the divine in this story? And it, I think, has to do with the fact that the book of Esther is actually a very dangerous book for us because it's a story of us living outside of our own country, engaging high levels of politics in those other places with a lot of influence and having to be saved. And there's a very dangerous situation here of looking like we are going to uprise and stand up against these empires that are quote unquote keeping us safe, like the Greek community would have, while also trying to show them who we are as a people. And it's beautiful to me that the Greek Jews who were trying to share their texts with their neighbors who were interested in reading it in their own Greek, wanted them to see a story where we were not simply defending ourselves without God, which for me is actually the story I need because I'm living in a world where I'm living under somebody else's rule and I'm not talking to God every single day. I want to see examples of people standing up for Jewish safety, no matter what, but I don't not love getting to read someone else going, well, what would Esther say to God, right? What would Esther's heart say and scream out to the divine if we were in her situation? And that's what we get in these editions. And because they're editions, they also kind of get to stand alone as their own texts. Like you can almost take them out and be looking at these prayers and these dreams that get added into the story and really look at them as their own piece of literature. I want to talk a little bit just the what question, like what is added? What are the pieces that are added? Because I don't know percentage wise, probably 85% of the book remains pretty much the same. Now it's in Greek as opposed to Hebrew. And we could have a long conversation about how like when you translate things, even when it's basically the same, it it might change in certain senses, but it's mostly the same story. But the following are sort of the categories of key changes. First, the beginning changes. You literally start different. You start in the, the later version that most of us did not get in synagogue with. Hey, everyone, there's this guy Mordecai and he's having a dream about dragons. That's how the book of Esther starts. I don't know about you. That's a good hook. At the beginning of a class, you don't just want to start with like, and today we're going to learn about this, but like you want to do a little activity to get people bought in. The later version of Esther has a much better hook. I am more intrigued by there's this guy Mordecai who's dreaming about two dragons that seem to symbolize something. I don't know what they symbolize yet, but that's interesting. And then in the epilogue, so I'm telling two, I'm telling the first and last edition first. Um, the, the epilogue tells you what those dragons stand for. Turns out one of the dragons stands for Mordecai, the good guy. One of the dragons stands for Haman, the bad guy. The things they do tie to other elements of the story. I think that's really interesting. And I think it points to some editor or some editors or some completer of the story, again, layered terminology, who looked at the story that they received and said, you know, there's something here, but like needs tweaks. It's actually similar. I've, we talked about Jubilees last year and, and its relationship to the book of Genesis. To me, it's similar. They're like, this is a divine book that I really am on board with. But in order for it to meet its purpose most, we need it to be a little more interesting, candidly. Like, like Esther is interesting. It's uh, Of all the books in the Bible, I think it's like a coherent story that flows from beginning to end. Not all of the books of the Bible do that. But I think 
we don't get that much like character development of Mordechai and Esther. We mostly hear about them. We hear things that Mordechai does. We don't hear soliloquies where you're giving your your soul to the audience, or in this case, to the audience and to God. That's that's the other insertions. These are long monologues, one by Mordechai, then one by Esther. Yes, they serve a purpose of like bringing God into the story, but I also think they just serve a personality purpose. Like I feel like I know Mordechai and Esther more. And that's a key thing. If you want a story to speak to people, you need to feel like the, those reading will feel like they know the person. So many people criticize movies or books when they say like, you know, I didn't really, I didn't feel invested. And I don't know, I'm Jewish and I'm reading a story about like Jews potentially getting genocided. So like I'm invested. I don't, but like if I weren't me and I were reading this story, yeah, I could have the general good and evil thing. But I don't know if I would be as invested as I am when I get a literal like 15 verse thing from Esther about how impassioned she is about all of this and how important it is. That adds a lot. And then the last little insertion I find fascinating, it's very talkless. It's very practical. We hear about these decrees that go out about the Jews, first to to kill all of them and then to not kill all of them that the king sends out. We don't actually get the text of those in the Hebrew Esther. This book gives us the text of those. And I think that's just like an author sort of saw a problem. They're like, we should know what these things say. They hold a big role in the story. So that's kind of the what of what gets added. And I do think that part of the purpose is just to make the book a little more interesting. And that might feel heretical. It might feel like the person who made those insertions didn't respect the original, didn't think it was good enough. But I actually think it's it points to somebody who desperately wanted this book to speak to people, but felt it needed a couple steps to get there. When you say that this story needed to be more interesting, I automatically respond negatively because I think it's my favorite book of Torah. But I hear exactly what you're saying, though, because we also have different storytelling narratives and tropes and ways of sharing and feeling invested in stories than they did 3,000 years ago. And we have this evidence, which I think is the coolest part of Jews throughout history looking at these texts, feeling seen, but not feeling seen enough. And it was worth it for them to actually make the story fit better into the world that they were living in. Maybe in the moment that the 10-chapter version of Esther was written, that was the height of storytelling, the lack of detail, the lack of narrative and diving deeply into the character. That could have been this type of storytelling that was prominent. We see that throughout all of Torah. It's very vague. We don't get a lot of incentive. We don't have a lot of interpersonal monologue. And on the other side of being able to be caught, being able to be brought into the story that a hook like Mordechai has a dream with two dragons. In the original, we get to see ourselves in that place. We fill in the characters. And even though Mordecai doesn't show up into this until the second chapter, which is odd, and I think that's another thing they're fixing, is they're like, the hero of the story is not King Antiochus and his wife Vashti in this awful situation they had. It's an important setup for us to understand how Esther made her way into the kingdom and how dangerous and wild this king was. But we don't actually meet our heroes until the second chapter. And for Better me- Better than Judith, where Judith herself doesn't arrive till I think chapter nine. Exactly. Right. And when I read stories like Abraham stories and the Genesis stories, the fact that we don't have a lot of information allows us to really see ourselves in the story. And the original version of Esther, the 10 chapter version, 
does give us more space to be Esther, to be Mordechai versus when you add a lot of narrative, we know the characters of Mordechai and Esther, but they are now separate characters. They're people outside of us. We are not populating their experiences and their feelings anymore. And I do think that narratively, that's just a different style and it adds so much. But for me, what's exciting is the opportunity to see what mattered to Jews throughout time. The parts that get me the most are that they wanted to see them praying to God. And I think that those are the pieces that to me personally are the most interesting because they give us personal prayers, actually probably of what Jews were praying back then. And it looks like the story of Hannah in the first book of Samuel, where she's sitting in front of the temple and just praying to God from her heart. It's our first example of personal prayer. It's how we get the example of having a personal prayer and conversation with God. And we're getting to see what Greek Jews before the common era were doing when they prayed. And it looks like begging God to be in relationship with us. That's such an interesting opportunity for us to learn about this entire community of people who we often write off. I mean, not to mention that this is a Greek text that we're talking about, about Jews who are living not just in Greece, but are actually trying to live Jewishly in Greek. And and, and potentially at the time, like we don't know exactly when this was written, but overlapping with the time of the Maccabee story where- Exactly. The, yeah. Yeah, it's potentially overlapping with the time that we were being occupied by the Greeks, right? There are these two opposing groups of people, one who's living in diaspora and thinking about how to be Jewish like Esther outside of this country, outside of their own autonomy. And then you have this group of people who are trying to understand how to be in relationship with their own autonomy when they are not autonomous. And they're happening potentially at very similar times. And are just vastly different experiences. I can't believe we just realized how similar these two things are and so opposite, such opposite opportunities for us to experience what must have been, what it must have felt like to be there. Yeah, I will say, I think what most makes me bemoan the fact that we didn't receive this in a more elevated status kind of way, the, the additional parts is, and, and by the way, this whole the whole point of all this is that I think we have the power to make what canon is. And so it's not that this is not canon eternally. It's that it hasn't been so far and it can be or cannot be moving forward. And we talked about last time how even having canon at all is kind of a questionable thing. But what bums me out the most is that if we had looked at these additions and said what you just did, like, wow, really interesting forms of personal relationship to God really cool long form prayers connected to this tradition of Hannah um if we if we put Judith in the book of Judith I know we've mentioned that a few times check out that last year episode of Apocryphus but like she also has kind of a long form moment of monologue which is kind of cool in a biblical universe where we don't usually get that from women characters like I bemoan the fact that those prayers are in Greek and we because they were not centered have inherited a biblical canon, a traditional biblical canon, where everything is in Hebrew or Aramaic, and where implicitly we have communicated to everyone that if stuff is in a different alphabet, then it can't quite be as holy. That if you have an English version of something, a Greek version of something, pick your language. If it's not in Hebrew characters, and I'm saying characters because we do have the precedent of Aramaic at the very least, which is a different language, but it's still that alphabet, 
we've conveyed to a lot of Jews, even those who aren't that deep in Jewish life, that things in other languages are a lower status. If we had Esther with the Greek parts as canon, that would be an impossible thing to really stand behind because we'd be able to say, look, right there, the Greek parts, that's our tradition. So we, when we're writing our own English poetry about God today, are potentially contributing our own new forms of Torah. I, I think that. I believe that. I think it would be easier for some other people to be on that train if they had an ancient precedent that was in the canon that was in an alphabet that is not Hebrew. I'm curious, Liana, if you just have like a closing note for us. We could talk about this book for a, a long, long time. But like for those who have gotten a little taste of Expanded Esther, Greek Esther, these editions, why is it worth them Googling around, finding these texts and having it influence not just their Hanukkah experience, because that's the time we're in now, but maybe their Purim experience when that book comes up in a few months? I think what I really sit with when I think about the book of Esther, regardless of its version, is that it is a book that tells us we have always struggled in diaspora, but that we have always survived in diaspora and figured out how to be in relationship with God, even when God is absolutely feeling absent from us. And whether we are in the mood to read a text that shows us an example of how to be strong when God isn't talking to you, or when we want to see an example of how to be in relationship with God when we feel afraid, I think it's an opportunity for us to really think about our actual own experience in a way that a lot of other books of Torah don't. And the contrast of the additions versus the lack of additions is even more evidence for us to think about how we want to live in the world today. A lot of books teach us about the history of people, and I get excited about learning about Greek Jews and how they were talking to God. But more than almost anything else, this is a book that teaches us how we can actually respond to things and to see evidence that our ancestors, who we might not have considered ancestors before, added to the canon to make it feel like they could actually own it, I hope will give us opportunity not only to believe that the text is expansive and has space for what we believe, whether we write it down and add it in as canon or not, but that we do have the option to make the stories our own. We tend to do that out loud orally in interpretations and in sermons in Purim skits, but it is also something that we've always done in writing as well. And I just want to really quickly wrap up in a very Lex way to think about maybe the answer is not, is it an addition? Is it original or not? It's the Greek edition, right? It's the moment that we put, the Greeks put out the their edition, E, of this text. And we also can add our additions to our editions. That just felt very you. And I felt like I needed to share it. Oh, I'm obsessed with that. Yes. The the Greek edition, E-D-I-T-I-O-N, not the Greek edition. I pronounce it the same way. A-D-D-I-T-I-O-N. That I, look, I, I'm not going to say it's a me. I, I get what you're getting at because I love wordplay, but I'm going to say that's a Liana thing. And I'm just receiving it. And that's awesome. So thank you for that. And thanks to all of you out there for listening. We're going to close this out. We've got two more amazing episodes coming your way because you deserve additions to the canon that is Apocryphest 2.0. Send us your thoughts. Send us your questions. We really appreciate hearing from all of you. In terms of our end of things, you can email me at lex at judaismunbound.com. In terms of Liana's, you could email her at liana at the Perfect. And um, 
We really hope that you will send us your thoughts. This has been a really fun time. We've already started to hear from some of our folks out there on the email list who have been getting our materials related to ApocryFest. Keep on sending in your input, your comments, your visions for next ApocryFest. Thank you so much. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>